Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Lean Publishing podcast, I'll be interviewing Patrick Kwa. Patrick works mainly as a technical leader and agile coach for ThoughtWorks, bridging the technical and non-technical realms, leading teams and writing software with a particular focus on helping teams improve through the practice of retrospectives. He blogs on various topics at thekua.com at work, and you can follow him at Pat Kwa, Pat Kwa on Twitter. Patrick often works, speaks at conferences, and you can find a number of his talks on YouTube, including the Geek's Guide to Leading Teams, where he discusses the idea that the most challenging aspects to software development are always the people issues. Patrick is the author of the LeanPub books, The Retrospective Handbook, A Guide for Agile Teams, and Talking with Tech Leads, From Novices to Practitioners. The Retrospective Handbook draws on Patrick's 10 years of experience running retrospectives to unlock their potential for your team, while Talking with Tech Leads lets you discover how more than 35 tech leads have learned to balance the technical and non-technical worlds. In this interview, we're going to talk about Patrick's professional interests, his books, his experiences using LeanPub, and ways we can improve LeanPub for him and other authors. So thank you, Patrick, for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, and I was wondering if you could tell me how you first became interested in becoming a developer and eventually became a tech lead. Sure, absolutely. Um, I guess I, was, I count myself lucky because I fell into the industry relatively early. Um, I mean, I'd played around with some sort of Commodore 64 type stuff as a kid, but I never really got into the whole geek developer from very young. Um, and then when I was in high school, uh, we sort of got introduced to sort of computers uh, pretty early on and had a really great teacher who was sort of teaching us about sort of software development. And um, I really got sort of, I guess, my mind blown around the stuff that you could kind of create from nothing. Um, and we were asked to sort of develop a um, sort of, uh, film rental kind of system using uh, back then Microsoft Access of all things, things I would never ever recommend right now, um, and kind of fell in love with I guess the things that you could actually create. Uh, that kind of led on to a natural path of me wanting to study more about this at university, and I did a double degree in sort of commerce and IT. And double mm. degrees are really popular in Australia, which is where I studied. Uh, so I ended up doing a commerce and IT degree, um, partly kind of interested in the sort of business side. Um, as well as the technical side. So it's kind of already an interesting sort of balance out. Um, after university, I went to start work for Flight Center, whose headquarters are in um, Brisbane, and then joined shortly after Oracle, uh, who had an R&D center in, in Brisbane. And there I was really lucky because uh, the team that I was working with, they were very early adopters of sort of extreme programming. And this is in the very sort of early days of XP, which was, I guess, the early 2000s where we were playing around with sort of the first continuous integration of a cruise control, uh, which was actually built off uh, sort of CVS, um, where we were introducing sort of, uh, sort of unit testing and JUnit. Uh, and for me, it was just such a really interesting contrast because Oracle is kind of a behemoth and uh, there's probably a lot of very traditional software practices and where we were sort of a very small part of it, sort of trying to change the way that we were doing software. This kind of naturally led on to, I guess, where uh, I ended up sort of joining ThoughtWorks, uh, whose chief scientist is Martin Fowler, one of the sort of Agile manifest manifesto signatories. Um, and I guess I've, I've traveled around and sort of worked with ThoughtWorks for quite some time now. I think this year is actually the 11th year with ThoughtWorks. Wow. Wow. That's a long time. Um, and have you, have you been working with them in, in London the whole time? Uh, so I started with them in Brisbane in Australia. Okay. Uh, so we actually have, uh, I think now, four offices. Um, and yeah, I transferred over to London, uh, I think it was about 2005, where I've been uh, based in London for probably the last nine years. Um, but being sort of a global consultancy, we ended up sort of, and we were pretty good at actually sort of shipping people around the world if they want. 
uh, because it sort of keeps our culture very consistent. Um, it's, it's a way for us to sort of build our own sort of network and get exposed to new sort of experiences. So I've spent um, the sort of tail end of winter in Calgary once and summer, which was a, a beautiful city. Uh, I've spent about four months in India, um, amazing sort of country, subcontinent. Uh, and I've spent, um, I don't know, probably on and off, probably a whole year in, in total uh, with ThoughtWorks in Germany. Yeah, actually, I read I read a blog post um, on your website about your year in Germany and and um, becoming fluent in a year. Um, <laughs> it was quite impressive, I thought, and and I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit about about how you approached that that year long project and and what the results were. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I I guess I was kind of lucky uh, in that with ThoughtWorks after ten years, we have kind of a sabbatical period, so you get paid uh, sort of equivalent of about three months. Uh, uh, worth of time where you can sort of choose what you want to do and you know when you're sort of presented with an opportunity to take three months off of work and do what you like I was kind of like oh it's really tempting I never took that gap year that a lot of people take after university uh, maybe this is the time to do it so I actually had the whole year off which was a fantastic opportunity and I have so many great memories from that time um, and I think if you live in Europe uh, and you come from sort of an English-speaking sort of background like Australia or the US um, it's amazing how many people that you meet in Europe who are bi at least bilingual, if not more. And um, for me, it was kind of like, I don't know, I, I would have always loved to learn another language fluently. And so for me, this was a really great opportunity to do that because I'd spent a little bit of time there for work. I'd, I'd sort of learned some German, but it was very uh, what you might use as a tourist. So, you know, I could order a beer, I could order for the bill. Um, I could read some th things off menu, but it's it's really far different from actually living there and being there. Um, so I kind of made the choice to live in Berlin, which, to be honest, is not the best place to learn German. Uh, it's so heavy with so many tourists, and I think Germany's level of English is, is actually pretty high. So you can sort of get away with actually not speaking uh, any German if you really don't want to. So I know quite a few sort of expat people who live there lived there for maybe three, four years, and their level of German is still that sort of rudimentary, um, I guess, tourist sort of level. Um, but and I, I guess knowing this helped me prepare because my sort of motto going in was it would be very easy to sort of fall into this kind of expat community and only speak English. Um, and so I really forced myself to sort of pretend that I was in a small little German village somewhere where I was surrounded by only German-speaking people and all the opportunities for the first at least three months, I would make sure that I would be forced to speak German. So I had a really great flatmate who knew that I was learning German and was patient enough with me to only speak German to me, even though it was very tough few weeks when I first sort of moved in and couldn't communicate. And I kind of felt like I can now imagine how a baby would feel in mm. that a baby's trying to maybe get across a message uh, can't because they just don't have the vocabulary, the words, and just that frustration. Uh, it's it's phenomenal. Uh, I think I remember breaking down like one one evening in dark winter in Berlin, uh, sort of saying, "Can't we just speak English? Uh, I just got to get it out of my system." And uh, my flatmate was actually really good with me and said, "Like nine in German." <laughs> And, you know, that was exactly kind of what I needed, which was the whole soft hand approach, but really firm that I was going to keep doing this. Um, I signed up for uh, sort of immersive German lessons, which was really important. So I think we did uh, classes from about 8.30 to about 1 every day. 
And then normally there would be sort of homework and sort of field trips afterwards. And I think that really helps provide structure um, and a really good learning ground to sort of get the basics. Um, I think one of the benefits of actually going through an experience like that is that you also meet people at a similar level. Um, so I think, you know, everyone's patient with each other because they understand they're also learning and you're just as patient giving other people space because you know that they know the words in sort of English, but you're struggling to find and, and remember what the words are. Um, and so that was really important. Uh, I, I definitely recommend people get a tandem partner. So there's a concept um, that's really popular in Germany. I don't know how that sort of translates and how popular that is overseas as well. But it's basically somebody who's learning the language that you would like to learn or who's native in that language and who would like to learn sort of English or another language that you can speak. And we would meet maybe once a week uh, for a couple of hours and uh, we would sort of speak an hour of German and then we'd switch to an hour of English uh, so that we had both time to sort of practice. Um, and it was very helpful because uh, the language school that I went to helped sort of connect us around sort of personal interests. Uh, and so we sort of spent a lot of time sort of visiting sort of different areas of Berlin, um, going to like different events. And it was just a really great way of sort of meeting a new friend um, having an opportunity to practice and focus uh, and sort of get better at that. It sounds um, like a it sounds like a really interesting idea also because, you know, usually the sort of teacher-student relationship, especially with language, has this kind of dominance on one side and humiliation on the other. So actually combining two people who each know that the other one is fluent in the language that they're trying to learn um, really balances that out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's such a key thing. And I think you hit on a point, which is I think there is that different relationship with the teacher and sort of the students. And um, I guess another tip that I would give people is that it's really worthwhile if you're going to learn something to learn from lots of different people. Um, it's, it's interesting because everyone has their own sort of bias about maybe preferred learning style. And I think teachers have their sort of maybe bias about how they believe that people learn best. Um, and it doesn't always work. So I, I think we went through about four different teachers over the course of uh, three months just because of the, the sort of level shifts and different sort of timings of, of classes. Um, and it was interesting for me to watch how, you know, one style of teacher didn't really work for me, but it worked for other people. And then another teacher who worked for me didn't really work for other people in that class. Um, and that's where I think it's really useful to basically get exposed to lots of different teachers. Um, and it's something that I think I, I kind of picked up from sort of software development as well, which is you have so many different people who you can learn from. Um, and each one has something very different to teach you. Um, you know, and, and I think that's a really important thing to when you're progressing in any skill development is that you get exposed to lots of different ideas. You may not necessarily take away everything that that person has to offer, um, but it does give you a different perspective. Yeah, that, that reminds me actually of a line um, from your from your website where and you're talking about programming, but obviously it can apply to other areas as well, where you say that you um, you believe strongly in self-empowered teams and individuals, having seen many, many talented people beaten down by the systems that they work in. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the idea, the idea of empowerment, but also, you know, the, the element of individuality that's inevitable in, in empowered teams is also very important. And I was wondering if that came from that particular sort of feeling maybe came from a personal experience you had with being beaten down in a big system, or was it something that you were fortunate enough to avoid yourself and just saw in, in other people? Yeah, I, I think I'm, I guess I consider myself pretty lucky because I haven't worked in a large, I mean, I've worked with Oracle, but not in a large system where I've felt beaten down 
or at least for a long time. And I think that's maybe one of the benefits of a consultant. So you see lots of different environments. Um, and what I really love is actually helping people sort of get over these sort of systemic things that have sort of, you know, beaten the motivation out of people, uh, you know, where they're just getting on with their tasks that they've been told to do um, and helping them connect with the things that they really like. Um, I'm a big believer in sort of Dan uh, Pink's drive book, Autonomy, Mastery and Purpose, uh, in that, you know, if you can give people a reason to engage with the work that they do uh, and they can sort of develop themselves at the same time and they have an ability to sort of choose the things that they think will help get them to, to that purpose, um, everyone benefits. Like the, per the people who are working on the, the sort of tasks are a lot happier. Um, I think the job will be done a lot better uh, and so whoever that is for, be it the end customers of the business, everyone wins. Um, and I just wish that more people had that approach of, you know, how can everyone find solutions that um, work well for everyone? And it won't always be optimal, but, you know, trying to at least have that conversation with people around what drives you, what are you interested in, and, and how can we make that work for you in this in environment? Um, yeah, and I guess that, that's kind of led me to be a very uh, independent person, which I think helped me uh, when I was learning uh, my German sort of language skills, is that I was just kind of doing things that I felt interested me, and that helped me, uh, and then I'd find people to help me sort of keep engaged, so I still had that sort of purpose. Yeah, there's, it's, it's really interesting. You brought up the idea of a system, and, and I've, I've noticed this in your writing in a couple of places where you talk about you know, there's there's sort of the well. You recently had an article about um, why expert developers can sometimes make the worst tech leads, and you talk <laughs> about how you know someone can be extremely talented at a certain kind of system like programming, um, but then the system that sits on top of it, where what are you doing and what how does it fit into the larger scope of things and the other people that you're working with? That those those talents are not. It's not that they're necessarily incompatible, but they're not the same. Um, and I was wondering if you could explain explain a little bit about that. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, it's really funny actually because I've done a lot of reading around systems thinking. So um, the Fifth Discipline is a really great book. Uh, as is, um, I think it's Thinking in Systems. Uh, I forget which one that is. Um, but I, I think what's really interesting is just trying to. I think we're taught in a certain way through the way our education system runs about being very scientific about things and boiling things down to singular causes and effects. Um, and I think systems thinking teaches you to see things in a different perspective of there's, depending on where you draw the boundaries of a system, there are different perspectives and therefore different motivators and different characteristics. Um, and for me, I think, you know, when we work in a software environment, you have the local system of maybe your either your software system that you're building or your team that's working in that sort of software system. But there's this sort of broader organizational uh, system in which it's kind of working. Um, and I think for me, one of the challenges sort of working as a consultant is you're often brought in to try to shake up a system. Um, and you know, you wanna create a empowered environment. Uh, so you wanna carve out a safe space for people to sort of um, experiment, uh, to gain their sort of autonomy and confidence. Uh, and also then deliver. Um, and there's a bit of a challenge there because, uh, you know, what's good for individuals doesn't always work for the whole system. And there's a trick in, I think, sort of synchronizing uh, the rate of change. Um, so I think one interesting thing that I see a lot with teams that really adopt a fully 
sort of extreme uh, approach to agile development and the organization is a very big lumbering behemoth is that, um, you know, people won't necessarily change the system um, or they won't fight to get the sort of surrounding system around them changed. Um, and so we have this saying, which is change the system or change the system. And what that means is that people will get frustrated without any change in their own system. So they'll choose to move to another company. So they change their environment. And that's another way of them changing the system, um, which I think definitely is a, is a um, consequence for companies that are thinking about moving in a very different cultural way from what their current system is. Um, but at the same time, for me, it's kind of, you know, you've, you've helped people connect with purpose and something good for them as well. So it's quite hard because we're trying to also appease the people that we work with as well as our sort of customers who may be quite different uh, or in different circles. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, um, especially I, I really like the observation about how um, we often try to take kind of reductive causal frameworks and then apply them to the complexities of uh, systems like human systems, for example, that they don't quite apply to. And I've got I've got a joke, which is it was um, it was an apple that fell on Newton's head, not a person. Um, if an apple had fallen on his head, then he would have the insight that he did of, about, you know, like, I mean, sort of legendarily, right, about like uh -huh. how this, these simple kind of maybe formulas can, ex can explain the motion of the planets very far away. But if a person had fallen on his head, he would have freaked out and jumped up and had all sorts of different thoughts, none of which had anything to do with this sort of simple explanation of, of, of how things move in the universe. Um, and, that, and that actually since the Enlightenment, um, you know, there's been there's been a problem where people have often tried to take the successes of of you know um, the sciences and then and then you know apply them to areas where the systems are actually different. Um, uh, there was actually a German philosopher um, in Husserl who wrote about that over a hundred years ago. So it's a long it's a long standing <laughs> problem. Um, but I was I was want to add a specific question. So your 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 book, um, the Retrospective Handbook, is about retrospectives. Um, mm -hmm. And this is in particular a way of of, of managing um, people within these within these systems and helping them to improve and maybe find their own place. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain to people listening what a retrospective is and why it's so important. Absolutely. Um, what's really interesting is that I think in most businesses, uh, the pace of change is really rapid and people expect things to happen. Um, and... I think often there is the assumption that everyone is doing the best that they can, which I also believe. You know, people are given goals and they're all working towards that. Um, but it's hard to improve in that sort of work environment. And for me, the retrospective is sort of a timeout from your normal day-to-day -day sort of work environment of all these things going on, all these priorities, uh, all these things that are changing, um, and creating a bit of space to actually reflect um, and for me, the power of a retrospective is this meeting where you bring people who are working perhaps on the same sort of goal together, where they can sort of talk in a bit of a safe environment to talk about what things that they could change or improve. Um, and for me, a lot of the, the key outcome of a retrospective is really about the small actions that they might take to slightly experiment or to improve something. I don't think you necessarily need to change everything, um, but for me, um, the idea of a retrospective is about change and that safe environment to talk about maybe what's gone less well in our environment uh, and what are the things that have gone well and maybe can we amplify them. And so it creates that space for a whole team or a group of people to come together 
um, which a lot of businesses don't really make time for. And so they never really take the opportunity to, to understand what improvements they might have. Um, and, and so, is, is a retrospective something that happens kind of continually throughout, a, a, let's say, a project? Or is it something you do at the end? You know, there's this terrible term of postmortem. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it, this sounds like it's, it's different, different from that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you're spot on. Is that a postmortem is kind of after everything is dead. So you can't really do anything to change it. Um, and so the idea for a retrospective is to keep these short, to do them regularly. So I encourage sort of groups of people to do them maybe once a week or maybe once a fortnight um, and to try to take small steps towards something. And for me, I'm a big believer in small steps can lead to huge change. Uh, and therefore, these small experiments that people can take um, give people an opportunity to review them the following week and maybe change them back if they didn't go so well. Um, and I think it's a really easy way to introduce new things because it's kind of low risk for people, right? Is that if they know that there's a way back, people are more likely to sort of try something out. Um, so yeah, you're spot on in that it is it is a bit more of a regular uh, sort of cadence of how you run retrospectives. Um, you write in your book about the retrospective prime directive. Um, and I, I was particularly interested in how important it was in your experience that actually this this is read out um, explicitly, um, uh, you know, at the, at the beginning of a retrospective or when, when people are being introduced to the retrospective process. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to actually read read the sentence um, sure. and have you explain why in your experience it, it, it is so important that it's read out. So, um, so here goes um, the retrospective sure. prime directive. Um, regardless of what we discover, we understand and truly believe that everyone did the best job he or she could, given what was known at the time, his or her skills and abilities, the resources available, and the situation at hand. Yeah, so firstly, I won't take credit for this because I'm standing on the, the shoulder of giants. And this actually comes from Norm Kurth's original book about project retrospectives, which um, were also sort of considered more at the end of a project that you might do something. Um, and for me, I think this statement is a really good example of that difference between a retrospective and a, and a, a sort of post-mortem. Um, and so for me, I think this statement is actually really important, particularly for people who've never done a retrospective before. So, um, you know, I've, I've worked with teams that have been working a couple of years uh, and they've been doing whatever they do. Nobody's ever really asked them about you know, what could they change? How could they improve things? And that ability to influence their sort of working environment. And for me, this is a really great way of sort of introducing the concept of safety uh, of, you know, we aren't here in a retrospective to point fingers and hang people up to dry. Um, we are here to really believe that everyone was doing the best that they could uh, and to sort of put our mind on the system that we can influence rather than pointing fingers and blaming people because that doesn't really improve the system. And I think um, for people who've been part of retrospectives for a while, they sort of understand this, but I think particularly for new organizations and um, what I would say is maybe more conservative uh, sort of teams or cultures where change doesn't happen a lot um, and they're not used to it, I think it's a really powerful statement to open a retrospective and create that safety. Uh, so. My rule of thumb is that people should try to use this for the first time if they've never run a retrospective with a team before. It's interesting you talk about safety um, and, and you actually in your book you also talk about bias and I was wondering if that's related to the importance that you place on independent facilitators for retrospectives. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a very strong memory of going to a client where a retrospective was run by a, a very, uh, I would probably describe controlling project manager. Um, and I think it was my second week with the client. And so I sat in the retrospective. I didn't have that much to offer because it was the second week. Um, and I just watched how that project manager would sort of take the uh, sort of whiteboard marker, point at somebody and say, okay, what went well last week? Point at another person and say, what didn't go so well? And it was really interesting because the responses from those people were pretty much one word answers. Um, there was no elaboration about story. There was no context given to those points. Um, and for me, it was such a contrast to when I've seen independent facilitators who don't have any other agenda um, who have no power relationship with the participants, is that it does really create a, a good, safe environment that people can talk um, a lot better uh, in. So I think it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really powerful concept to have a independent facilitator, and I think it really increases safety. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting too how the you know when you, when you're talking about the um, in talking with tech leads, your your second LeanPub book, I think you write that. Um, the experience you gain as a developer does not prepare you for the responsibilities of the role of a tech lead. Um, so even though it's important that as a tech lead, which you define as someone who um, is actually still still coding usually, right, and participating in, in the creation of the code for the project, but also now has been moved into a, a position where they're kind of, you know, steering the ship. Um, and, and, you, and, you know, all the skills that you're talking about now, you know, like not, not sort of pointing and kind yep. of demanding one word answer. Well, I mean, it's effectively demanding one word answers. Um, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about how your experience interviewing all the people for talking with tech leads, um, you know, what, what insights you might have about, you know, people who've newly moved into that role or might be a little bit worried about being pushed into that role and, and how they can, you know, kind of shift from being a developer to being a tech lead. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I still, it was really interesting talking to so many different people because when I set out to sort of do the book, I didn't really have an idea about what responses I might get. Um, so the book was kind of intentionally structured so that I posed the same sorts of questions to people. Um, and what kind of emerged was like interesting themes that people had different, um, I guess, when they had different perspectives on or different times of their sort of uh, career as they were maybe earlier in their sort of phase or later in their phase about what areas that they focused on. And so there were some natural themes that kind of developed. Um, I think for people who are very new to it, um, who I call the sort of novices, um, there's a huge shift from what you do as a developer to suddenly leading a team, is that uh, as a developer, you're normally very focused on how well your code is structured and how how nicely everything runs and uh, you don't really need to worry too much about sort of the people on your team. That's somebody else's problems. And you don't necessarily need to worry about where work comes from and, and managing sort of business people. Um, and then when you're suddenly thrust into this role of being a tech lead, you're trying to also write a little bit of code, but at the same time, you're pulled in lots of different directions. So um, that's quite a natural state. Uh, and so I think um, my first word of advice for people in that role is to not panic because it can be really overwhelming. Uh, so time management skills uh, are quite useful of trying to prioritize through some of this stuff. Um, I think also the big difference, I think a big jump is as a developer, you feel like you have a lot of control over the, the code that you'll end up writing. Um, and I think as a lead, it's difficult to give up that control. So back to that sort of project manager who's like really restricting what people say and 
um, you know, letting go is really hard. Um, you know, as a, co as a developer, you're really opinionated about how something might be written. Um, and as a lead, you still have to have some guiding principles and you have some sort of say, but you have to be okay that, you know, the method or the structure won't be written exactly how you would have done it. Um, and in fact, it may actually be better for it because somebody has a different approach from you from actually solving things. Um, so there's a big shift uh, mentally, I think, that developers shift when they move into this role of suddenly realizing that it's okay that problems get solved, but in a different way. And that's okay. Yeah, great. It, it just I, mean, I was just fascinated reading the stories from different people about their different experiences. And it was it was really interesting how you say that, you know, you in the book, you asked people the same set of questions, right? But, but they came back with these kind of un, unsolicited kind of themes that kind of grouped, grouped yeah. them together. Um, yeah, that was very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was wondering, actually, on the subject of, of, of publishing, um, you actually turned talking with tech leads into a print book. Um, yep. And it's for sale, I think, in three different regions on Amazon. Um, yes. And I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about about that experience of turning it into a, a print book from an from an ebook. Absolutely. Um, so I've been a fairly early adopter of LeanPub, uh, and I think it was actually with the retrospective handbook that I was trying to turn into a printed book as well. Um, and so I was kind of asking after a sort of print ready PDF version. So I use the CreateSpace um, publishing platform, which is sort of a part of Amazon. Um, and then they sort of self-publish on demand um, uh, a printed book, but they require a whole bunch of sort of preparation, like a PDF version that is printable. Um, and it's quite an interesting process about moving from sort of an ebook format to a, a PDF that is print ready, because there's lots of little formatting differences that make a big difference when you're when you're sort of in a print version. So a simple example is, I guess, the alternating page numbers from left to right is that you kind of want them to be on the outside of the book, which when you're on a single screen, it doesn't really matter. Um, the same thing with sort of uh, the margins is that when it's printed, uh, you want the margins that are going to be bound together a little bit deeper because you want it to kind of look equal. So when somebody opens the book, it kind of looks nice. Um, and so LeanPub has been really awesome at actually picking up feedback. So I was generating lots of sort of feature requests for understanding what a print-ready PDF could look like. And then I would do sort of a test run with Amazon and sort of give feedback um, saying, okay, well, the test copy now that I see it in real life needs some adjustment. Um, and, and so I've been a huge fan of LeanPub from the very beginning because uh, it was a, it was kind of a, un, it was a really great example of, I guess, lean flow in action, which was uh, you know, I was creating a sort of demand and uh, your platform was sort of responding to that as I was sort of getting feedback from it. And I wasn't quite sure what I really wanted either. Um, and it was really useful to have those really fast feedback cycles. Yeah, I, I remember um, I remember uh, seeing all the interaction between you and Scott, LeanPub's, Lean, one of LeanPub's co-founders um, during that process. You really, and one of the reasons I'm asking you is because you really pulled a lot of that, a lot of that out of us. And we were so glad when someone arrived on the scene and was like, I want to have good output. Um, to make a good to make a good print book, um, and so are you, are you happy with where it is right now? You know the 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 print output and everything kind of works more or less the way you need it to to get it on Amazon and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what was really interesting was that uh, I guess comparison between the first draft of the retrospective handbook uh, and then preparing it for the sort of talking with tech leads uh, print version, um, and I don't think there was any feature requests that I had to change at all. 
In fact, I think for me that the difficult part was actually the wraparound cover, which is something uh, that um, you don't necessarily need to worry about in a sort of ebook world. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is something that is exclusively to do with sort of print layout. So you need to think about what goes on the back, what goes on the spine, um, and trying to get the formatting right based on the thickness of the book is kind of one of those tricky, uh, you have to print it really to sort of see what the end result is. Um, but from a sort of platform perspective, it was exactly what I needed, and I didn't have to do any sort of extra changes to it. Oh, that's that's great to hear. I'm really glad, really glad that it's that it's at that stage. Um, I was wondering. I actually, I read that you you used a copy editor, and it might have been even the same person for both mm -hmm. of your books. And can you say a little bit about what that experience was like, and how you found a copy editor? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I found a copy editor through uh, a sort of. Um, a colleague of mine, actually. So uh, I think one of the very early drafts of the retrospective handbook, I'd asked some people to um, give me some feedback on it. Um, and I think one of the early bits of feedback is that you could, you're really too close to your writing. <laughs> um, and I think this is probably one of the dangers of self-publishing, which is, you know, you sort of decide to go down the I can take care of everything route. Um, I can do all the grammar and, and checking. Um, but actually that's not my strength and that's, you know, I would actually say that's probably one of my weaknesses is that I tend to speed read. So I tend to, um, skip over things that other people would notice. And I think there's a lot of value in working with an editor. Um, so I worked with, uh, Angela, um, from virtual editor, uh, Angela Potts, and she was really, she's based in Cambridge. And I guess one of the really great things is that we still physically haven't actually met. Um, so we actually met over sort of uh, email and then we did some Skype sessions. Um, and so she worked very virtually as well. And I think the lean pub process was actually really useful because um, I could just share sort of simple text files with her. And with enough sort of simple syntax, she understood how to sort of start editing some of those uh, files. And we could actually just simply trigger, you know, draft copies really rapidly. And so um, that was a really useful process of actually sharing the book in, and getting fast iterations over the, the copy. So did you actually share, like give her access to the Dropbox folder that you would have been working in and direct yeah, access absolutely. to the files? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that worked really well. Um, and for the first book, it was just a bit more copy editing. So I already had the structure in place. And then um, our relationship kind of evolved a little bit more. And she helped me with a little bit more of the structure for the second book about how to make it a bit more interesting rather than just a whole series of sort of interviews. Um, I noticed that both of your books have really good covers. Um, and I was wondering if you made them yourself or did you, did you use an external service to do that? That's, a, that's one of the questions we get all the time from people because ah. a, a great cover really does make a big difference, just in the, particularly in the confidence that people have mm -hmm. in a book, especially if it's self-published or maybe even in progress. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so I designed them myself. Um, and I wasn't sure about this actually to begin with. So I was also thinking about sort of uh, going out to, I guess, the market, what some other uh, authors have done about trying to get somebody to sort of put, pitch different ideas towards a cover. Um, but for me, it was actually kind of like a fun, creative experiment. So um, my goal was to yeah, create something that was a little bit eye inducing. It could be a lot better, but um, it's kind of also the skills that I had. <laughs> Um, so I ended up studying actually probably about, um, there's a couple of websites that show really great book cover design. Uh, and I sort of looked around at, I think a site that showed like 50 or a hundred of them. And then I was looking at some of those things, thinking about what sort of 
uh, themes and colors and sort of, I guess, patterns that I might take that I could reproduce um, in open source tools. So I use GIMP for the actual file creation. Okay. Um, and, and then I just sort of ended up coming up with a couple of different designs. Um, and I also did the whole sort of lean testing as well. So I actually generated quite a lot of different variants. And then I tested it against sort of some of my colleagues and close friends to see, you know, do you like A or B better? Uh, you know, what do you think about this color? Um, how's these patterns? Um, and I just ended up settling on the sort of style that you see on the retrospective handbook. And then I wanted to sort of continue that theme with the second book. Um, so um, that was a little bit more interesting because I was actually, it was really important for me in the talking with tech leads to get a diverse sample of people in there. So um, what might be surprising, which I haven't really written a lot about, is that I've managed to probably get about a third of the people in the book, I think, um, to be female tech leads. And it's really hard to get female developers, let alone people in leadership roles. Um, and so when I was designing the cover, I also was very conscious about making sure it wasn't a, a male or a female looking sort of tech lead. So I've kind of tried to go with a sort of gender neutral kind of looking icon. Um, which is what my design intentions were. Um, I don't know if it's come through, but um, yeah. And I guess that was the sort of like, so have some sort of theme that comes along from the first book, but have something that's representative about that sort of topic. Um, yeah. That's, that's really interesting. I mean, obviously you're very hands-on with the, with the you know, scope of the entire project. And I was wondering if you'd ever, for both books, and I was wondering if you'd ever, if you had considered going with a conventional publishing process or conventional publisher to begin with? Or was that just something that never occurred to you and, and publishing it yourself just seemed like the way to go? Um, I think for the first book, I had thought about going to a publisher. Um, but I was just really surprised at how rapidly it had gone through. I, I mean, there's I know a lot of people who've written books uh, for you know the Prags and O'Reilly and things like that. Um, and I think there's trade-offs, and I wanted to go down the whole self-publishing route to see how easy or hard it was going to be. Um, and I've been really happy with sort of the reach of the platform and the ease with which LeanPub um, makes it easy for people to buy and sort of distribute the sort of books all over the world. Um, and I mean, I might go through that process, but for me, I think um, the sort of editor is probably the the biggest value that. Um, one of those traditional platforms can bring and that that's they have a strong network mm -hmm. um and probably around the sort of consistent theme so if it fits in with an existing series like the martin afala signature series or uh something like that that probably makes sense but um i've been very happy with the whole self-publishing route um yeah and i guess the only thing that sort of i'm thinking about is is how better to market the book um but i think that's part of the self-publishing process right which is um, what can you do to sort of get the book out there? Yeah, definitely, definitely, and that's you know kind of the you know writing writing's the hard part, but so's so's the marketing. Um, uh, Absolutely. <laughs> I, I was wondering, um, actually, just I guess my last question would be if there was one sort of dream feature that you could have us build for you, what would it be? If there was one thing that was either missing or that you now looking back or even looking forward wish that we could give to you as part of our process, what might that be? Ooh. <laughs> It's a really great question. And to be honest, I don't have a good answer. I mean, one of one of the things I really like about you guys is that if I if I want something, I feel that I can sort of post something on the forums and get a response and have somebody either say it's on the roadmap or we'll work on it. Um, 
And I think that's such an amazing opportunity of the platform. And so I can't really think of another feature that I'd really like. Otherwise, I would have asked for it. By now. <laughs> well, well, thanks. I mean, if, if you if you ever do, please, please, uh, you know, please, please come back and ask again. I mean, because that's, I mean, a big part of our process is is having people approach us and tell us what they need um, and then us delivering it. I mean, after obviously with deliberation. Um, so anyway, Patrick, thank you very much for your time um, and for being on the Lean Publishing Podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Yeah, thank you for having me.